But the most impactful thing that parents do that can affect kids um, is when parents talk badly about their own body. So almost every single patient that I see can count times in their childhood where they heard things. For example, a mom saying, oh, um, oh, don't take a picture of me. My arms always look too big. Mm. Or I'm, I can't eat that spaghetti. You have it. You enjoy that spaghetti, but I can't eat it. It'll go straight to my thighs. Mm. Or wow. they have memories of their dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because those or sound have- so innocent. Yes. <laughs> They do, and parents don't mean to do it, but children interpret criticism of their parents' body as criticism of their own body. That was my guest on today's show, Erin Solomon, who's a licensed clinical social worker who specializes in eating disorders. As you listen to this interview today and you are in need of a resource, we recommend NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association. They can be found on the web and can be reached by phone at 1-800-931-2237. Enjoy the show. You are tuned into Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Hosted by Toby Jenkins, a licensed marriage and family therapist serving Central Kentucky. Each week, Toby will bring you a show with a topic related to mental health, relationships, or self-improvement. The name of the show, Paradigm, comes from that moment in the therapy process when a profound shift in perspective happens for a client. An epiphany, sometimes accompanied by physical reaction that leads them to look at things differently and make significant steps towards improving and enriching their lives. listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships in You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins, and today I am excited to talk about a topic that is not talked about enough and is probably really misunderstood uh, from a mental health standpoint, and that is eating disorders. And today my guest is Erin Solomon. Erin Solomon has a private practice in Lexington, Kentucky, and she focuses on eating disorders in particular. Erin is a licensed clinical social worker, and she got her master's in social work from New York University. At New York University, she did a wide range of uh, clinical work. Uh, She worked with uh, children who witnessed domestic violence and helped uh, as part of a program called STEPS to End Family Violence. She also uh, uh, worked with uh, adults living with HIV AIDS. And um, if you've listened to my previous episode on HIV AIDS, there's a huge mental health component to that. So, uh, Aaron, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Great. You know, um, so I met you a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I find your story of how you got into this work extremely fascinating. So, uh, similar to me, uh, you took a different path into this kind of work. Uh, I think your story is way more fascinating than my story of doing engineering first. So. Um, Please tell my get my listeners uh, how what you did before you got into this work. Sure. So I was uh, I was a film major in college. I went to University of Texas at Austin and studied radio, television, film. And after um, after college, I went to New York and worked for MTV for several years doing production there on 
uh, a variety of different shows, but I was on a, a reality show called Made for the longest period of, of time there. Wow. Yeah, it's very different than social work, I know. Um, but while I was there, I guess kind of what led me to this path is the show I was working on focused on teenagers. And um, I really, really enjoyed working with the teenagers and working with their families. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just started, I found myself gravitating towards that work more than the writing and the editing and that sort of thing. And uh, I remember one night, I'll never forget it. It was Christmas Eve and I was in the editing room working till all hours of the night. And I was stressed out and I was upset I had to be there. And I think I was probably venting to the editor. Um, that's the person who kind of cuts and pieces together the, the show. Mm-hmm. And he just said, you know, kind of offhand as he said, um, well, don't be stressed. We're not curing cancer here. <laughs> and, and I was like, yeah. And he probably just thought nothing of it. He probably doesn't remember saying it. But that comment, I was just in a moment where that really just hit something for me where I thought, yeah, I'm spending all this energy and effort and time and I'm not really helping anybody. And mm. I felt like that cracked something open for me mm-hmm. where I, I thought to myself, you know, I don't think this is the path. I think helping people is the path for me. Mm. And I started doing a lot of soul searching. I read um, uh, the book, What Colors Your Parachute. Have you ever heard of that one? I have heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so kind of through some soul searching and some research and, and I figured out that you know, what I really wanted to do was be a therapist and help people live a happier life, a more fulfilling life. Um, yeah. And so that's when I decided to change paths and went to NYU to get my master's in social work. Wow. You know, um, I, um, you know, that's a, that a lot of people can't make that transition. And I teach. And one of the things I try to tell my students is, um, especially these days, is um, in my age, like it was, things are just different. And when I was in college, you expected to get your degree. And then that's where, where you would work 40, 50 years till you're retired, et cetera. So many young people get into careers and they want to change and they get locked in. So um, what were some of the things that helped facilitate you make being able to make that change? Hmm probably a a couple of things. One is I had a mentor at MTV who um, was a really great person and really someone I trusted and looked up to. And we had a conversation one time where she basically said she'd been in this career for 10 years and there wasn't at that point a place to go or a way to change. And working in television is really long hours. It's really Mm -hmm. draining. You're working often on a freelance basis so there's not great benefits. It's, it's a really tough lifestyle. I think people think of it as really glamorous lifestyle, but it's really actually a very difficult. It does sound lifestyle. glamorous. Um, <laughs> yeah. You're putting stuff yeah. on television, your yeah. name's up there, you're meeting celebrities. Okay, maybe it's yeah. not as glamorous. I mean, there is that part. There is that part. But it's also it's really long days. Um, it's very little benefits you're constantly proving yourself because, you know, say a project lasts six weeks, then you want to get on the next project. So your every job is like the first job where you're Mm -hmm. just, you know, busting your tail trying to do the best that you can. There's Mm -hmm. really no job security. Um, So it's a really tough industry. And she had a young child and I saw that it was really difficult lifestyle wise. And Mm -hmm. so I knew that 
I wanted a family one day and it would be very difficult to have what I wanted for my family and be in that career. Yeah. And, and the second piece was, it was not fulfilling in the same way that I, I wanted my career to be fulfilling, which I feel like now is, and it fulfills me in the way that I had hoped it, it would. Mm-hmm. But I also had a really supportive partner who yeah. um, was willing to, he, he just really encouraged me and said, like, I think you can do it. I think this is a great idea. Follow your dreams, follow your hopes. And I'm not sure I would have had the courage maybe to do it. I le- I'd like to think I would, but to be totally <laughs> honest, I'm not sure I would have. Yeah. If, he had not been so encouraging. Right, right. It, it's a that's a big change. I mean, you said a lot of things that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you you get burned out working that much, and then trying to figure out, uh, you know, now what was this all for? Um, which is also possible in this line of work too, which is why self care is is really important. Um, but you know, some of the things that you talk about um, is uh, is it. It's more difficult when you have small kids, for sure. Um, I also coach my students to um, not get so financially strapped that they can't make a change. But um, and maybe this is generational too. Um, I, I was never, uh, my parents never told me to go do what you're passionate about. They basically said, when you're 18, you gotta go. And you need to do something that you can support yourself on. And so, you know, I was fortunate for me, engineering, I really, really enjoyed it, loved it. Great people, great time. Um, and my situation was, was a little bit different, but one of the commonalities is that, um, you know, my wife was really supportive of me going back to school. And like you, uh, even when I worked in engineering, I always wanted to help people. And so, um, I've come to realize that I'm just a helper <laughs> at heart and doing this work kind of work I do is way more fulfilling and uh, rewarding. Um, so do you still see stuff you produced on television these days? Uh, no, no, I don't. Oh. <laughs> I, I have some of the old uh, DVDs, I guess, of episodes that I've produced, yeah. um, but no, they're not airing these days. <laughs> oh, Oh my God. My head would be so big if I had something on television. I mean, I, it'd kind of be like if people came over, it'd be forced watching, uh, (laughs) any dinner party, (laughs) we're going to sit down and watch my show from 1998 on MTV. We saw this already. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Sit down, eat your popcorn. We're watching this. That's right. Yeah. Doing a, a reality show on MTV, which honestly, most of my friends were not watching that at the time. So it's very different than, you know, producing something like Super Bowl or Oscars that everybody's watching. So I don't know. And I didn't feel that way at the time. I, yeah, I, my ego would be out of control. Um, so the fact that you can remain so humble is amazing. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we have a lot, a lot in common in terms of, um, I think I've mentioned this before on my show that, um, I don't look like I'm in my 40s, but I was 40 when I went back to school. And having that kind of life experience, um, for me being at that age, um, made learning, I don't know, it was addictive. Um, I don't know how else to, I had so much more, well, you know, as an undergrad, I had a lot of purpose, but going back uh, to learn how to help people was just um, super motivating. Um, So I, now I had the experience where I was in, my cohort were people in their twenties 
and I was the same age as their parents. Um, but the life experiences I had at that point, I think were a definite benefit. So, um, so even I, I would imagine what you, the people you work with in producing a reality show and working, uh, you know, as hard as you did also probably gave you a lot of perspective when you went back to school. I, I completely agree. And this is not to diss anybody who what went straight from undergrad to graduate school, because I see there's a lot of value in that. But I, I think that, at least from my perspective, I was very grateful and very, um, I really wanted to immerse myself in, in the material and in the yeah. education. And I think that, you know, people who are going straight through, you can get a little, as you said earlier, burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'd see people, you know, on their cell phone or, or have their laptop open, be looking at other things. And I'm like, I wanted to be like, guys, we're here. We're doing this. Yeah. This is all the information that we need to be great at our job in the future. And so that kind of, I found the people who took time between undergrad and going back to school really absorbed the material and really valued it. I, I think a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's maybe a little, maybe that comes with age or life experience, work experience. But that was my, that was my take on it when I was in school. Yeah, I, I, mine was similar and I, I, I viewed it more, uh, this may sound extreme, but, um, you know, people's lives are hanging in the balance with how, with the material I'm taking in and, and the background, uh, and the models of doing therapy and what to look for and, um, and developing your own style. And so, yeah, I took it very seriously as well. Um, Well, we're up against our first commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to jump into uh, eating disorders. We'll be right back after this break. This is Toby Jenkins, founder of Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy and host of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy is a proud sponsor and supporter of Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. At Jenkins Couples and Family Therapy, we work with couples, families, and individuals walking with you through life's challenges and transitions. You can find out more about Jenkins CFT and request an appointment for therapy at www.jenkinscft.com or by calling area code 859-806-0093. And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships and You. I'm your host, Toby Jenkins. And today my guest is Aaron Salomon. Most helpers uh, and mental health specialists have some topic that they are pretty passionate about. And for me, it's working with couples. And when I talk to other uh, therapists, they always say, you've got to be crazy to do couples work because it's so explosive potentially. So, um, Eating disorders. How how did you get interested, or how did you get interested in working with eating disorders? So after I uh, got my master's, I started working at University of Kentucky Department of Psychiatry, and I had a mentor and supervisor there who specialized in eating disorders. 
and she kept telling me, I really think you're going to like eating disorders. I think you should give it a try. And I kept telling her, uh, no, thank you. I, I've personally never experienced an eating disorder. So I really don't know anything about it from a personal level. I Mm -hmm. don't really, I, I just, it felt totally outside of my comfort zone. I really wanted to work with teenagers and families. Mm. Then of course, working with teenagers, had a couple of patients that had eating disorders. And so I'd go to her, we'd talk about them. And then one day she said, why don't you just sit in on this eating disorder group that I run? And as soon as I did, it was, you know, a game changer because what I saw in that group that I really had not connected before is that it's really not about the food. Mm-hmm. It isn't, it isn't. You know, it's yeah. really, the group was con- was made up of young women who were smart, determined, go-getters, um, and they were using food as a way to manage their anxiety or their emotions. Wow. And once yeah. that unlocked for me a little bit, then I, I got it. That's pretty neat because, you know, even as we talk about eating disorders, I have a certain uh, profile in mind and is not what you just described. Um, that's really, that's really neat. Um, I'm curious, what is the profile? Because I think that a lot of people have, like you said in the intro, an idea of what eating disorders is or an idea of <laughs> who it affects. And my hope is to kind of shake that a little bit. <laughs> good, good. Um, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that, but I will share. Um I, I have in I have in mind um, my profile is young, white, um, and sometimes you can physically see it, like the emaciated body, or you know, gosh, this is going to sound really bad, but um, kind of the um, the the popular woman, young woman, who is really uh trying to manage their body image um kind of thing um that is my stereotype of someone with an eating disorder yeah so hearing your group experience blows that away which is good yeah i i i'm glad you said that because i think that's probably most people's uh idea of an eating disorder probably because that's most displayed in the media. If there's a, yeah. a movie where, or, you know, a TV show or something like that, where someone's struggling with an, anso- an eating disorder, it's typically someone who's portrayed as really thin and white, popular, middle to upper class, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, most people, I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but I'm trying to jump into it, is that no, no, most people fine. with an eating disorder, you can't tell. You would yes. never be able to tell by looking at them. Mm-hmm. There's a very, very, very small percentage of people who you could tell by because they are extremely thin, but that's like, that's a teeny tiny sliver Mm -hmm. of the eating disorder population. Yeah. You know, and we'll probably get into that. um, All demographics, demographics of people um, are susceptible Um, men too, which is probably doesn't get talked about nearly enough. Um, But um, so yeah, it's it's actually been my experience. I have worked with women of color who have eating disorders. Um, and like you said, um, I'm not savvy enough to pick it out. Um, usually we end up getting into it uh, a little bit in, because like you said, it's hidden very well. So um, 
Yeah. So what, let's talk about just kind of the broad, like what is an eating disorder and what are like the broad categories of eating disorders? So an eating disorder is a mental illness where a person is obsessed with food, body weight, and body shape. It's mm. not a lifestyle choice. It's, it's really a pervasive illness. Mm-hmm. And there's three main categories of eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. Okay. And before I talk about the differences of the three of those, which are, are important to talk about, I want to highlight that they actually have more in common than they do apart. Okay. People with eating disorders judge their self-worth in terms of mostly or exclusively in terms of their shape and body size and weight. Mm. They create rules around food and compare themselves to other and they let food dictate their life. Um, And like I said earlier, contrary to, to most people's belief, you can't tell somebody has an eating disorder by looking at them. Right. And they are all triggered by one thing, and that's dieting. Dieting, dieting. triggers all of them. Yes, that is the common denominator. Does it matter the kind of diet um, or just it does dieting, not. period? Dieting, period. So um, it can look like a, a lot of different things. Someone with anorexia, for example, um, could think, you know, I'm going to – cut out sugar to perform better in my sport or something like that. And then it just kind of snowballs from there. They could cut out sugar and then they're going to cut out carbohydrates and then they're going to cut out meat or whatever. That's just an, you know, an example, but, Mm -hmm. or it could look like somebody um, in their teens or in their twenties saying, I'm going to get in shape, doing air quotes in shape for um, spring break or for my wedding. Mm. Um, So it, the, the, Or, you know, it's somebody who's always felt bad about their body and they decide to try a diet and they fail and they feel terrible about themselves. They try again, they fail, try again, they fail. That dieting, it really is, it's kind of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's a lot of other risk factors Mm -hmm. to get people to the place where they're vulnerable for an eating disorder, but dieting is kind of the thing that cracks it open. Wow. And we live in a... I don't know. I don't know if diet conscious or just diet crazy uh, kind of culture. Um, So, so anorexia itself. um, So I I know what binge binging and purging is, but what's the difference between anorexia and bulimia? So anorexia is when people restrict, severely restrict their food intake. Um, There's a lot of medical complications that come with that. Um, Mm -hmm. Anorexia can be fatal. Um, anorexia, I'm sorry, eating disorders has the highest mortality rate of any other disorder in the DSM. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah. So it can, it, and even if someone doesn't die from an eating disorder, they can be serious lifelong medical complications that yeah. occur from an eating disorder. Yeah. So anorexia is restricting. Restricting. Uh, so restricting. is that like not eating for weeks, months, or is it kind of relative? And kind so of what it looks like most typically is anorexia also starts, um, typically it starts earlier than bulimia. So anorexia mm. for most people start somewhere between 12 and 14, starts really young. Um, and, and the tricky part about that is it can also affect puberty or delayed yeah. puberty. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because it's happening at that, that really critical time in development. Um, so usually it starts with someone, again, experimenting with the diet. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a patient recently who the, the coach of their you know, team said something like, I don't know, something like cheese is bad or said something like, I don't know, some comment. And this person really took that in and cut out cheese, then cut out milk, then cut out, um, that became a vegan and then cut out sugar. I mean, it can really start to spiral, but it usually starts with restricting one food or making a food a a bad food. Mm -hmm. Um, And then their list of good foods kind of gets smaller and smaller. Yeah. That's how it can look, or it can look, look like someone starting to, uh, I'm sorry, decrease their calories. So they're going to say, I'm going to eat this many calories today. And then it just gets smaller and smaller until they're eating very tiny amount of calories. Right, right. You know, you, you, you uh, mentioned puberty in particular. Um, and percent body fat is a big uh, variable for teenage girls going through puberty, for sure. Um, and so the correlation is, is the, the, you typically say, see women, think of gymnasts, gymnasts who are super small, very low body fat, typically have uh, delayed puberty, um, irregular uh, menstrual cycles. And so anorexia gets you into this kind of uh, precarious situation with development if you're starting around 12 or 16. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In severe cases of anorexia, yes, you can lose your menstrual cycle, which Mm -hmm. has really had a lot of uh, medical complications to that. And so, so bulimia then is... How, how would you define or how would you differentiate bulimia from anorexia? So bulimia typically looks like um, someone uh, trying to restrict and then having a moment where they're just so hungry that they binge on a lot of food and then they purge. So they typically purge, but it can also look like different behaviors to try to get rid of the food that they ate. It can be purging, laxatives, fasting, over-exercising, but some sort of compensatory behavior to rid themselves of that food. So mm. then they get in this cycle of, they feel remorse and shame after the purge. And then the cycle begins again. I'm going to be perfect today. I'm going to eat perfect. And guess what? Eating perfect isn't doable. And then they fall into a binge cycle again. Oh yeah. Now that sounds very familiar to uh, typical addiction cycles where there's a huge shame component. I'm going to drink one. I might as well have like 40 <laughs> or, you know, you go way over Exactly. Um, yeah. Wow. I wasn't perfect today, so screw it. I'm going to eat all the donuts. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Might as well do. Yep. Do it up the right way. Well, yeah. we're up against um, another break. Actually, it's one minute insight. Uh, you're listening to Paradigm Insights into Relationships in You. My guest today is Aaron Solomon, and we are talking eating disorders. We'll be right back after this break. insights into relationships in you, and this is One Minute Insight. Uh, in the career of many therapists, we encounter periods of time where we see a lot of the same things. Uh, so for instance, I've had a season of men who were going through breakups. Most recently, I've noticed a trend in many clients who are fighting through or working through some type of parental wound of some kind. Now, 
If you've had some type of neglect, abandonment, abuse, or rejection from a parent, those things linger with you through your life and they affect and they essentially especially affect the way you connect with partners in the future. It also affects how you parent in the future. So if there are hurdles or dysfunctions in your relationships and you have put off or suppressed some type of parental wound, it's okay to go get help. The only way to resolve these kind of issues in your current relationship is to work through the hurt and pain from those rejections and abandonments. This is Toby Jenkins, host of Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. One of the biggest stresses that we encounter is money. Money issues strain our family life, create stress in our relationships, and can provoke serious anxiety and depression. And many don't know where to turn to get relief. That's where The Darius Norman Show comes in. The Darius Norman Show airs daily on WTTA-FM 101.2 from 1 to 2 p.m. Darius Norman is a certified credit and financial counselor and author of Rewriting Financial Rules. It's his objective to empower others with educational tools and services to assist them in taking control of their financial and credit issues. Tune in to The Darius Norman Show on WTTA-FM 101.2 and you can follow him on Twitter at The Darius Norman Show. And we are back. You are listening to Paradigm, Insights into Relationships and You. Today, uh, my guest, Aaron Solomon, um, a licensed clinical social worker, and we are talking eating disorders. So before the break, we were talking about bulimia. And, uh, you know, it, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I often confuse anorexia and bulimia. Um, so we're talking about bulimia. And bulimia in particular is eating than purging. Yes. And so, you know, one, one statistic you mentioned earlier was about the, um, the, the mortality rates with eating disorders. And so while, you know, it may be obvious that starving your body may have, uh, you know, can lead to death, there are other, there are other complications associated with your overall health. So um, let, let's jump back into bulimia with the, um, there's some similarities with bulimia and other other means of trying to the shame cycle, essentially, where failing to eat perfect then leads into the uh, uh, what I call the well, many call the all screw up moment, or then it's like, well, I'm just going to eat everything, and then you feel even worse about yourself. So, um, in both cases, with with bulimia, um, your your body is still not getting the nutrients it needs. Is that correct? So is one more deadly than the other, I guess? Um, they, they both have medical complications that are slightly different. So with anorexia, um, it's the, the long-term health consequences can be um, changes in your bone density, uh, hormonal issues. Immediately, you're going to see more hair loss. So you'll see some scalp loss. And also, mm. you can see some body hair growth at that time. So your body is trying to often compensate for the nutrients being lost by growing a little bit of this sort of downy um, peach fuzz on mm -hmm. your body to keep your body warm. Um, it can cause strain on your heart, um, low blood pressure, low heart rate. Um, bulimia can have medical complications similar, but also um, your electrolytes get all out of whack from the purging. 
Um, you could have uh, uh, broken uh, blood vessels, capillaries along your eyes and your and wow. your cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, often you get swelling along your cheeks. You can have problems with your esophagus and your GI system. Mm-hmm. So it's it's definitely unpleasant. Yeah. For these, yeah. Um, and so, from a mortality standpoint, so I I know of um, I actually have a friend whose child they discovered it kind of as her organs were starting to shut down. I think it might have been been her liver or kidney that were that was damaged by this. Um, it, so it, it needs to be caught at some point. Now, which, which is easier to hide? You know, when we're working with, with clients that are engaged in any type of behavior like this, whether it be, my, my experience is more so with addiction and say alcoholism, you can hide alcoholism a little bit. Um, and I've been amazed at some of the ways that some of my clients have hidden drug use and alcohol use. What are some of the ways that, uh, people hide these eating disorders? So it's, it's interesting. My, I've had many patients who say, um, I'm really good at my eating disorder. I'm really good <laughs> at uh, keeping my eating disorder secret or I'm really, you know, they'll say it, it's, it's both. It's like they want to, to end the eating disorder, but they also sort of feel some pride in, in an odd way about being in their minds good at it. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways that people hide eating disorders. Um, I would say for anorexia, a lot of times people start wearing um, baggy clothing. So I'll see a lot of my mm. clients wearing really baggy coats or baggy sweaters. Um, is that to, to, that's to hide their body? Yes. Oh, yes. okay. Yes. Um, a lot of times people with eating disorders also do body checks. So they'll do different um, methods to um, see if they're in their mind in check or not. So they'll, they'll um, pinch certain parts of their body or they'll see if they can put their fingers around their wrist. They'll do different things to kind of make check themselves, these mm-hmm. checking obsessive behaviors. Um, so yeah, sometimes they'll wear baggy clothes to hide things or um, with the purging, with the bulimia, most of the time they're doing these, these binges in secret anyway. Yeah. So it'll be, they'll drive on their way home from work, they'll drive through, you know, three different fast food restaurants, binge, purge, and then get rid of the, um, the garbage, the trash before they get home. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of different ways that people hide it. Yeah. Um, now I've, I've, I think in, I, I think I remember this from, uh, uh, my training is, um, with the purge cycle in particular, you get, you can check, uh, well, it does a lot of damage to your enamel and your teeth. Yes. Um, and so um, you see more cavities, um, other long-term issues from uh, dental issues. Um, any other those kind of things that kind of pop up with either one of these? Yes, with bulimia, for sure, dentists can also often be the first people to identify um, someone with bulimia. Um, I think, you know, pediatric dentists, you know, dentists who are seeing teenagers, if they start to see enamel eroding before what is typical of that age, they have to have the conversation with a parent that says, mm. you know, I'm really concerned. This is typically a sign of vomiting. Like let's all, you know, it, it's okay for them to start to intervene because they are the, the people who are seeing this often first. Yeah. So yeah, they'll, they'll get uh, teeth enamel erosion often. 
Yeah. You know, um, you mentioned dieting being a trigger. Um, one of the things, especially now we were kind of, well, we're kind of talking mostly about women um, with this, but um, there's a lot more pressure on women in particular, I'd say from the media to kind of be hot, so to speak. Um, how much, how much do these kind of social pressures play into these eating disorders? I think they play a lot of pressure. Um, some studies have shown that people actually who uh, were not exposed to Western beauty ideals, so then immigrate to the United States, mm -hmm. the next generation is more likely to have an eating disorder as much as, um, as much as any other American, because it's, it's, there's an exposure. I'm not sure if I'm describing that right, but what I'm trying no, to say I is, get you. There's, yeah, there's an exposure to being uh, exposed to what the beauty ideals are of this culture mm -hmm. that has an impact. Yeah. I think probably part of the impact is that it impacts dieting. And as we yes. know, diet is the thing that triggers eating disorders. And that's not to say everybody who does the diet has an eating disorder, or that, but we know that that is a common, a commonality among eating disorders that they've started with the diet. Yeah. Even yeah. eating disorder. Well, that's, um, you know, that's similar with, um, with um, obesity rates, you see uh, once that's one. It, I'm always fascinated by studying immigrant populations, and when those populations come to the United States, um, they, like you said, they quickly become part of the culture. Um, there was a quite an interesting um, study from a nutrition standpoint on I think it was Japanese um, culture where Japanese immigrated here. Um, in, Jap in Japan, uh, far fewer people who are, are uh, obese, but when they come to the United States, that next generation, their obesity rates match um, uh, kids in the United States. And so um, it's very interesting to see uh, the impact that has on eating disorders, um, just from a cultural standpoint as well. So, you know, you mentioned diet as being one of the uh, key triggers, are there other big risks? I mean, you, you mentioned a couple, but are there other major risk factors for people that may be susceptible to uh, eating disorders? Yes. Um, the first one is genetics. Um, if somebody in your immediate family, typically a first degree female relative, has an eating disorder, you are more likely to have an eating disorder. Wow. And they've shown that also with twin studies, that mm. genetics really does play a big factor. And that's, again, that's not a hard and fast rule. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not to say that if somebody in your family has an eating disorder, you're going to have one. Certainly not the case. Or that just because no one in your family has an eating disorder that you are immune from having one. It's just kind of genetics plays a risk factor, is a risk factor. Right, right. Um, the second one would be personality traits. Um, someone who's a perfectionist, who maybe tends to be anxious, who obsesses, they're more likely um, mm -hmm. to be someone with an eating disorder. And then as we talked about, the, the media um, plays a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in terms of risk factors, we've, we've kind of, so I've run across a couple of men who have also had eating disorders. So you know, by, by the numbers, um, what's the approximate breakdown of men and women who have eating disorders? So um, 
a lot of men, uh, more and more men are having eating disorders, but a huge chunk of men with eating disorders that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet is people with binge eating disorder. Mm, okay. So binge eating disorder is, is essentially bulimia, but without the um, purging or some sort of behavior to get rid of it. Um, oh, okay. Yes. And so they just eat. They eat, they, uh, they eat, they binge. So they're mm-hmm. eating a large quantity of food mm-hmm. in a short amount of time, usually rapidly. They report a loss of control, a loss of feeling, a feeling of loss of control, followed by an immense amount of shame and guilt after the binge. And we're talking really a large quantity of food. We're not talking about, oh, I had a big scoop of ice cream because I was having a tough day. It is a, a objectively large amount of food. Some people can binge, you know, 20,000 calories in once in one binge wow. episode. Wow. 20,000 calories. Yes. Wow. Yes. So, and then again, that's not hard and fast. That's just, that's an example of what we're talking about here. We're not talking about emotional eating. We're talking about a binge episode where people are eating a large quantity of food until the point where they're sick or they're part or where they're feeling just completely numb, like dissociated mm-hmm. from the body. Mm. Wow. And so from that standpoint, the risk fact are the risk factors similar for men as well? And is there, is there a body image associated with this for men too? Yeah. So often it's, it's very similar in that it's triggered by the same thing, feeling, um, wanting to diet, the diet failing because diets fail. That's what they do. It's mm-hmm. not a person diet. And we, <laughs> I can talk about my loathing of diet <laughs> and more extensively if you want. I might get on a little soapbox about diets, but, um, it triggered by that. And then it's a feeling of a failure. And then it's the screw it, you know, yep. I'm already, this, you know, and just that, that same sort of, um, feeling that we were talking about earlier, oftentimes yeah. with substance use as well. Oh, and cool. so men, um, men are almost equal with binge eating disorder. So with anorexia and bulimia, it is more women though. Mm-hmm. Men are affected by it as well with binge eating disorder. It's almost about equal. Wow. That's pretty fascinating. Um, we're up against another commercial break. Um, today we're talking about eating disorders and my guest is Aaron Solomon. Uh, we'll be right back after this break. got mail you've got mail uh here's today's listeners listener mail it comes from aaron aaron writes i'm engaged to get married in nine months the only thing my fiance fiance and i really fight over are my previous boyfriends and my contact with them should this be a deal breaker or how do i work through this with my fiance huh what do you think about that aaron well, I just want to clarify this. Aaron is different than the Aaron who wrote the email. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what a coincidence. Um, Sorry, different Aaron. I, I, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Okay, so what is my, what are my thoughts about Aaron's dilemma with her fiance? So that's a, um, I wonder what, your fiance is needing to me if mm. he if this upsets him it probably speaks to a need mm. and if the need 
reassurance? Is the need, I, I don't know, but what is it about the relationship with your past boyfriend, the friendship with your past boyfriend that is upsetting the fiance? That's good. That's really good. Uh, that's kind of where I, uh, it, it's interesting working with couples. Um, I've experienced, well, depends on age. I'll give two answers. One is my experience with uh, some of my younger clients is that um, they still maintain friendships with people they were in intimate relationships with. And that makes things really murky in your new relationship. And like you, um, I would be curious, what is this need that your fiance has, Aaron, that's uh, not getting met? And then I'll couple with that is um, it, there's always a dilemma. And I see this with a lot of couples. They don't know uh, how much to share or what not to share and if that could be used against them. And so I try to engage couples into having open and honest relationships about uh, open and honest conversations about their previous relationships. Um, and you know, that, that gets into some interesting dynamics with shaming and, um, especially when it comes to women, yeah. um, where, uh, the, the standard is different. Um, and those are issues I like to tackle, uh, in session as well. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, along with that, um, what happens after or now, uh, how do you interface with your exes, both his exes and your exes. And you have to, you have to define uh, how that interaction is going to take place. And I've seen it everything from no contact to, oh, I don't care if you talk to them, uh, you know, once a week or, I mean, it, but you have to define it for your relationship. So Aaron, yeah, not this Aaron. People, oh, sorry. Huh? No, go ahead. I was just going to say, and something that both parties feel comfortable with, you yes. know, if one party is not comfortable with it and you know, if he says you have to end all friendships and she's really not comfortable with it, then resentment can, can build. So it's, it's got to be something they're both on board with. Absolutely. So Aaron, not Aaron Solomon, but Aaron who wrote this email, uh, <laughs> I hope we helped you. <laughs>
the reason that I dislike diets, I actually, there's a reason behind it. And um, one is that the diet industry is a money-making industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're interested in making profit. They're not interested in your emotional well-being or your mental well-being or your physical well-being, really. They are interested in selling you books, selling you pills, selling you shakes, whatever it is. Um, It's an industry. It's a billion-dollar industry. Yes. We also know that diets don't work, that diets don't work long-term, that there's actually associated weight gain with diets. So we know they don't work. We know that they're just a profit-making industry. They take people, my, my third beef with them is that they take people out of their body. Your body is wise. Your body often knows what it needs. So, um, you know, sometimes right before you get sick, for example, you'll be really, really hungry and you you don't know that you're about to get sick, but your body mm-hmm. knows. Yeah. So your body's hungry and saying, let's have another snack. Let's fill up on another thing because they know that you're about to go into a place where you need that energy to recover from this cold or flu or something like that. Right. So our bodies are often wise and know what we need, but we take ourselves out of our body. We say, no, we're smarter than you. We don't need to listen to you. I'm not going to eat at that certain time. I'm not going to eat this certain thing. And then we have these cravings. Why? Because our body's telling us something. So, yes. so body diets taking us out of our body is, is a big problem. My, one of my big problems with dieting. Yeah. So then from that standpoint, when you're working, I did, you know, I, I don't know if we're as too soon to talk about treatments, but um, so then from that standpoint is one of your first lines of attack to help your clients establish a better relationship with food. Absolutely. Absolutely. So treating eating disorders is a team approach. You have to be a part of a team. It takes a village. Mm. So you have to have a therapist and a nutritional counselor. So a okay. nutritional counselor is, um, a registered dietitian and someone who's very familiar in helping someone with an eating disorder. It's very different than other uh, areas of, of being a dietitian. So that looks different for different people, depending mm-hmm. on what eating disorder you have. Um, and then also part of the team would be a medical professional, so their their main primary care physician, yeah. and then sometimes a psychiatrist if needed. So that's the team to help somebody with an eating disorder. But with their relationship with food, sometimes for someone who, for example, has anorexia, um, they are not going to be able to intuitively eat because they've ignored their hunger cues for so Mm -hmm. long Mm -hmm. that they have to sort of reintroduce themselves to hunger cues. So they might have much more of a structured plan as opposed to someone maybe with binge eating disorder who... um, may need to just learn more intuitive eating skills. So kind of the way that plan looks is different for different people and their presenting issue. But yeah, having a, a nutritional counselor is a huge piece of recovery. So you, you use the term intuitive eating, and is that essentially um, eating when you're hungry and listening to your body in terms of what to eat, how much to eat, and when to eat? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So if you look at toddlers, toddlers are the perfect example of, of intuitive eaters. You know, they don't feel the pressure to finish everything off their plate. Um, <laughs> they tell you when they want a snack, you know, they tell you when they're yeah. full. They have <laughs> that they need, um, skill set. 
that we yeah. lose as we get older. I'm laughing because um, I, I was having a conversation, I think it was with a client and uh, actually it was with a client. And, you know, you talk about having a healthy relationship with food. A lot of times uh, family background can can have a huge association with this. And in particular, we're talking about um, how, um, actually I was talking about my, my in-laws um, and their parents grew up in the depression. And so they still wash their paper plates. Um, that's what my wife grew up seeing, her grandparents washing paper plates and reusing them. Yeah. And her parents do the same thing. Um, and along with that, um, food, when food has been scarce, then having a lot of food is a, has more symbolic meaning. And so when you said clean your plate, that was the message I received when I was a kid, no matter what was on your plate, you had to eat all of it. Um, and it didn't matter. And so you end up ignoring those, um, full (laughs) signals because, um, this, uh, gosh, I hope my mom's not listening to this, but, um, (laughs) um, you would get, I would get in trouble for not eating everything on my plate. And it took me a long time to kind of rethink that um, in terms of what that means for me. Um, and you, you get a lot of, you get some of that too, um, because it's wasteful. That was always, don't waste that food. So you have to eat it. And so um, that's it. That's very, brought back memories. You said intuitive eating. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a toddler. So I, I, that's difficult. So it takes a team. And so you mentioned nutritionists, which makes a lot of sense to me. Where would a psychiatrist come into play there? So if someone's um, eating disorders are often co-occurring with other mental health disorders. So um, often someone with obsessive compulsive disorder or depression or anxiety. So if they need uh, medications to treat those disorders, um, then a psychiatrist would be helpful for that. There's not a medication specifically for eating disorders, though um, some new research is showing that Vyvanse uh, can be helpful for binge eating disorder specifically. Mm-hmm. But really what people would see a psychiatrist for is the co-occurring disorder with eating disorder. Cool. You know, and, and from a, you know, from a talk therapy standpoint, there are some times where, um, so I, I don't prescribe medicine, but there's sometimes um, medication works really well hand in hand with talk therapy. Um, my approach is typically it, I try not to make it a permanent fix, but, uh, I want to develop, uh, help clients develop coping skills. And sometimes in intense or, you know, acute situations, medication is a nice compliment. And so it works the same with, uh, eating disorders. Um, you mentioned earlier, um, so I often see clients who, uh, use food for coping mechanisms or to cope. You mentioned earlier the eating a tub of ice cream. Um, so that may not fit into, uh, from the DSM standpoint, uh, being defined as an eating disorder. But so is that something you see? And then how do you, I guess, how do you approach that kind of eating? So Yes, I see a lot of people who don't meet criteria for an eating disorder, but have disordered eating. Mm. So their relationship with food or their relationship with their body is creating a, a lot of distress for them, but maybe they don't meet criteria to, to, to be in one of those three categories. So for example, in the DSM, the 
diagnostic statistical manual, you have to have a certain amount of binges, I think twice a week uh, for a certain amount of months, maybe three months. If you're fact checking this and I'm not getting this perfect, I'm sorry for a listener other, but off the top of my head, I think that's what it is. No, that's good. So then if, yeah. So then if you're meeting with someone who's binging maybe once every two weeks and it's causing them a lot of distress, they may not meet criteria, but that is certainly a problem and something that, that we should work on. Yeah. Especially if they have attempted to curb that habit or behavior and are unable to do that. And it's a uh, counter to what they're trying to kind of to moving them towards being healthier, I, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so to help those clients, I think that, you know, when you said something about medication, um, the saying came to my, to my mind. Um, have you heard the saying, it's hard to learn how to swim when you're drowning? Yes, and, I have. And I think about that with medication oftentimes, mm. you know, Sometimes people are not able, some people are not in a place where they're able to absorb and learn the coping skills that they feel like they're drowning. And so sometimes medication is like a life jacket. Yes. You know? mm-hmm. um, so if people, if I feel like people are needed, I, I encourage that. If I feel like people don't need it, I, I don't encourage it. You know, I, I think it's so such an individual choice, but sometimes it's really needed to get into a healthy place. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Um, I, I view it the same way. Well, actually, one of my pet peeves about uh, mental health in general, and uh, this drives me crazy, when I have clients that come in and they spent 10 minutes with the psychiatrist and they come out with a prescription. And I've, I've got a couple of clients I've worked with for a while that know exactly what to say to get what they want. Um, I had a conversation with a, with a, with a mother and wife who... Uh, came in one day, I'd been seeing her for a little bit, and she was on, uh, uh, she got an antidepressant. And I asked her, well, what, um, what you, how much time do you spend with your psychiatrist? She said, oh, just 10 minutes. And I told him I couldn't get out of bed. I had, I was very lethargic. I felt kind of down. I said, well, did you, did you tell him that you're, you think your husband's cheating on you? <laughs> and she's like, well, no. Well, I said, well, you know, put it in context. Um, yeah. You, you you may not be as depressed as you think you are, but you are in a struggling marriage right now. Um, so that's my pet peeve with um, how things can work. But anyway, um, I'll get off my soapbox on that. That's one of my soapboxes. Uh, I'm with you. It's a short <laughs> it's a short solution to a complicated problem. Yeah, and it doesn't solve the problem. It's treating yeah. a symptom. So um, we're up against another commercial break. Um, uh, today, uh, we're talking about eating disorders um, with Aaron Solomon, and we'll be right back after this break. If you have a relationship therapy or personal growth question you would like answered on the air, email me at Toby paradigmradioshow.com. You can find archive shows and additional details about guests of the show at the show's website, www.paradigmradioshow.com. You can follow weekly one-minute insight posts on the show's Instagram and Twitter feed at Paradigm Radio Show. For archived episodes, you can find episodes wherever you subscribe to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify.
Thank you for tuning into Paradigm, insights into relationships and you with Toby Jenkins. Join us again 